Welcome to I Am Helen Keller's Daughter podcast. My name is Laura Newman, and I want to share my story about my mother's deafness, blindness, and dependency on prescription medication, her schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and the resulting of my chronic trauma throughout my childhood and adulthood. I'm currently an unexplored speaker, eager to share my story of resilience with anyone who wants to listen and who will find meaning and learn from my life. My vision is to help listeners discover what it feels and looks like to live without sight, hearing, connection, and love. The unknown community of the deaf and blind world, children of deaf adults, and the association of cultural awareness that my parents were without, and us, that subsequently hurt two forthcoming generations. I will share all of my pain and everything I learned. I provide real life accounts in my healing. Welcome back to podcast four. I'm so excited to have everybody listening to my podcast. It's been um, great to see all of my followers and the number of downloads. And so I want to thank everybody for listening to my story and being so supportive. So let's dive right into what um, tactile sign language is and how we learned how to communicate with our mom. And so tactile sign language pretty much means that you are signing in the hand. And so there's going to be a touch, a touch of the skin, a touch of the hands in order to relay the communication from one person to the next. And so we learned how to do tactile sign language by living with my uncle. And now if you don't remember, I talked about how my uncle was deaf and blind like my mom. Um, He had lost his eyesight either in his like when he was 21 or 22 And at some point in our lives, he moved in. I'm not sure exactly when he moved in, but he lived in our basement and he, um, he was the one that taught us what tactile sign language was like. And so we would practice with him, not necessarily as, as we were getting prepared for our our mom, but we, we just learned through him how to communicate with our mom in a, in a later time period when she would fully become blind. And so he had patience out of this world because I'm sure he was frustrated that neither one of us um, told him who we were. Normally when you're talking to somebody that's deaf and blind, um, unless they really know your hands very well by the, the by communicating with, with you often. Like, for example, my mom knows who my dad is because she, um, she knows the way that he communicates, how fast he talks, um, probably the how his skin feels, the texture of his skin and how um, thorough his language is. So she knows once it's him, she doesn't, he doesn't even have to say, oh, it's me, your husband. Um, She just knows it's him. But if I were to talk to my mom, like today, I would have to say, okay, it's Laura. And she'd be like, oh, okay. Um, And then I just go ahead and with my conversation. So you just say who you are before you start. And so when we were growing up, that's, you know, some of those things that are just like the proper way of communicating and just the more humble way to make sure that the person that you're communicating with knows who you are. We definitely never did any of those things. So I'm sure he just was like, what child is this? And I'm sure we were talking about things that he probably didn't care about whatsoever, like lollipops and swimming and popsicles and Snapple. I remember I loved Snapple and I don't know if I ever talked to him about Snapple, but I mean, we probably were just saying the most, you know, kid-like things and he was trying to figure out what the heck was going on, right? And he's like, in his own world, um, really had a lack of communication. The only people he really talked to was us. 
And so he had four children, my younger brother, barely, but four children, um, his sister and my dad. And so it was through him that we learned how to do tactile sign language. And by trial and error, we started to learn to slow down and to um, make sure that we knew the signs before we talked to him and to make sure that we'd pat, you know, pat him on his shoulder to not startle him if we were going to have a conversation with him and to redirect his body if he was facing a different way. And we wanted to be able to make sure he really clearly could communicate with us by facing us directly. And so some of those things um, he taught us and we were able to use with our mom. Now, my uncle was pretty amazing in the fact that he was independent. And when I say he was independent, he was um, he was going places all on his own. And so uh, we grew up in a neighborhood that was pretty amazing. And so we grew up on Humboldt and Brady over in Milwaukee on the east side. And um, if anybody's from that area, they know that there's a really strong community of Italians and Polish people. And we were surrounded by the Italian family. And so everybody around us was a family member of some sort. And they owned almost every restaurant, store, grocery store in the like the range of I don't know a couple miles, and so um, there's Gloriosos that was that was down the street from us, and there's also this place called the Pharmacy. Today, on Brady Street, Gloriosos is located where the old pharmacy was, but the pharmacy used to be um, uh, it was a pharmacy slash grocery store slash restaurant. And that was my uncle's favorite spot. So he would walk from our house there. And so it was about five blocks. He'd walk there every single day. He would do small grocery shopping there. He would sit down and have coffee. And I don't know what else he was doing. You could smoke in there. So he's probably sitting down smoking and having coffee, maybe reading um, Braille. I can't remember. And then he would buy cigarettes, buy a soda and come back home. Uh, He would go back at night sometimes to buy himself dinner and he figured out a method to communicate with the um, the waitresses. I can't remember how, exactly how he did it, but they started to get to know him and he was pretty um, easy. He would order the same thing over and over again. So they just, I remember they would just kind of pick up on it. Once in a while, I would go to the, I would go to the pharmacy while he was there and I'd just look and be like, that's my uncle. And people were like helping him and he would be smoking a cigarette and people just, they talked to him and they treated him really like anybody else. And so I think that has a big deal or a big fact to deal with the fact that that community was so family oriented that they treated him like their own. And everybody was so tight that everybody kind of knew who he was based off of the family that communicated with each other. You know, if you're going to Gloriosos, which was down the street from the pharmacy, everybody knew everybody. And so um, in the community, my uncle was well known. He was known for, of course, his blind and deafness. And he was also known for his independence. He was known to be a big smoker. That was something he loved. So whenever he would come down the stairs to the to like the checkout area, um, they would have his cigarettes ready. It was just interesting to see um, how much people knew him and how much uh, they knew about him without him ever having to speak a word to them. And so um, my uncle, he hit, he's he had some issues where, not issues, 
there's been times where he would come, you know, he would get hit by a car because Brady Street, if you're not familiar with the area, it's a very busy area. So he he got hit by a car a couple times and um, he healed up and he went right back to it. So his level of independence was pretty remarkable. Um, and my the friendship and the bond between him and my mom probably was healthy for both of them because they needed each other. Nobody else really understood their needs or what they were going through. And um, he needed a place to live that was supportive with people. And and from my impression, he didn't have um, a place to go where he could, you know, be on his own and feel loved. And so he moved in with us. That's what I remember. So anyways, um, now this neighborhood that I talked about, um, the neighborhood was pretty cool. We had some neighbors to the left of us that owned the Peter Scortino Bakery. And it was really interesting because they worked at the bakery and the dad's name was Peter, and the son's name was Peter. Like, everybody's name was Peter in that family. So you didn't even have to ask what their names were. You're just like, that must be Peter. Now who's the woman, right? And so we would get bread from them, and they were they knew our family really well. Um, and then across the street from us were some of the owners from, like, this, like, jewelry place that was down the street. And so um, the the neighborhood was pretty tight. And you know what's interesting? Um, The neighborhood is so phenomenal that there's actually books written about Brady Street and um, the way that the Italian family was there and the... And all the crazy stories. So you probably are guessing some of those like scary Italian stories that like we had Giovanni's, which was this restaurant down the street. And so there's kind of, there's a lot of history, a lot of stories that are surrounding this community that we were right in the middle of, um, the middle of. And so um, we also had this house that was pretty interesting. We didn't know it until we sold it, but this house was pulled by horses off of Wisconsin Avenue, and the house was pulled to its location over on Humboldt. So our house is actually in books. And um, the difference between our house was it was like a flat roof, and it used to be a slaughterhouse. Um, And so there's some significance to the flat roof. I have no idea what that is. And the slaughterhouse, you could tell that it was different because there was these doors that were in the house that didn't have any stairs. And so those stairs were long gone, probably because when they moved the house, they didn't take the stairs with them. And so um, they caulked all those doors that were not supposed to be open to make sure that nobody would open the door and literally just fall right outside the house. So um, it was interesting because here we are, this really... Um, unique family, two deaf and blind people living in the house, surrounded in this family of historical um, family heritage that was surrounded by a really strong, tight-knit family of Italian and Polish people. And then um, living in this um, era where we were, you know, we're living in this home that was like published in, in newspapers and in books, and you can find them online. So it's pretty significant the way that we grew up um, in our story. So some of the other stuff that I wanted to mention about me growing up um, at the same time of me going to school and, you know, I would say elementary and middle school and, you know, some of the complications that I had with my mom, I mentioned. But before I get so deeply invested in sharing those stories, I wanted to talk about kind of like what it was like growing up with my mom and some of those differences of communication. And so one stark difference I know between the hearing and the deaf world, and I think any CODA, which is a child of a deaf adult, would agree with me on, and that is when a parent wants your attention, they're going to call you and they're going to scream for your name. And it doesn't matter where you're sitting or where they're at, you're going to have to get up and walk over to them. And so that might not sound like a big deal, 
But if you can imagine all the times you've yelled to your significant other or to your kid to, you know, some a quick message, a quick request, just easily without having to walk all the way over to where they are to say, hey, could you get this for me or could you do this? Well, in the deaf community, you are the child and you're going to have to get up and walk all the way over to the parent to see what they want. And half the time, the things that they wanted were pretty insignificant. Like, could you throw out the trash? Well, yeah, I could do it. I was going to do it before I went to bed. Or uh, could you tell me what time it is? Because we don't have a clock in here. Or just things like that where you just start to get frustrated and you'd be like, oh my gosh, I have to get up again. And so that was just the way things were. And so... This lack of being able to just quickly talk to each other in other rooms or speak or scream um, and to each other in other rooms meant that we we would have to get up and go over there. And so after a while, of course, you know, being a child, you just kind of get irritated and you'd be like, well, could you just not call my name and come over by me and sometimes and just come by me instead of making me get up and walk 50 feet to you, Right. So the way I would show that I was upset was probably different from how maybe somebody that was in the hearing family would show that they're upset. So I would stomp my feet. And so whenever my parents like did something to make me mad, I would turn around and stomp my feet because it would shake the floor and my mom could feel those vibrations. And so it was my way of showing that I was upset or frustrated. And so I think it's pretty funny because sometimes I don't realize it, but when I'm just like goofing around and being funny or, you know, and I'm like hanging out with somebody and I'm just being goofy or something, you know, I, who knows what's going on. I just start stopping my feet and I'm like, oh my gosh, I used to do that when I was younger. Another funny thing about our family is um, because we, my mom couldn't, you know, she didn't feel very comfortable using her voice to call our names. So she would play this game with us. Oh, she started to play this game with us, I should say, where she would like blow a whistle to to call us to come to her. So we'd be moving a lot faster because we were pretty slow. You know, we'd be in our rooms like doing homework, watching TV, playing games, and we wouldn't want to run all the way down the stairs to see what she wanted. It was like we were just like, what do you want? And so we would take our time to come talk to her. And she got pretty irritated by that. So she figured that if she played this game, it'd be like a motivation for us to come. And if she blew a whistle, we would think that was cool or something. And then we would run down there and be like, oh, what'd you need? So she would play this game with us where she'd be like, all right, I'm going to be in the kitchen. You're going to go upstairs on the top of the stairs. I'm going to blow the whistle and we're going to see how fast you can you can be to come down here. And when I call your name through this whistle. And so each one of us had like one whistle or two whistles, or three whistles, and she would, like, blow this whistle, and we'd be like, oh, and then we'd run down there, and of course, we were kids, we thought it was really cool, and we thought it was awesome that she was, you know, blowing a whistle, and we just thought it was cool to interact with her in that way, but that game, and that whole entire situation probably lasted a couple weeks before we started getting irritated at the really loud whistle, and so, of course, she couldn't even hear what she was doing, so when she would get irritated with this, she would be blowing on that whistle so long and so hard and we'd be in our rooms probably twice as mad as we were before that we had this dang on whistle, you know? And so the whistle didn't last very long. Um, I'll save that story for my sister. Uh, I I figured I'm probably going to interview some of my siblings on this podcast and interview different codas so you can have different perspectives of um, living in two different cultures and the deaf culture itself. And so I'll I'll let her finish that story, but there's some funny things about that, um, the whistle story. 
Other things that we used to do that um, reminds me of my mom is she was really into plants. She loved spider plants. I'm not sure if she got that from um, her mom or where she got that from, but they were everywhere in our house. And those spider plants meant a lot to her and she treated them like they were her babies. And so she would take really good care of them. She was always like trimming them. She was always watering them, making sure that they were in the sun. And she took her time to make sure that they were watered and she gave them like the best water. Um, She would like buy special water from the store. And so now that special water pretty much is like distilled water at the grocery store. But for me, I just was so taken back by the level of care that she gave these plants. So I would just watch her. I remember one time she threw out two plants and I knew how much she loved those plants. So I went back in the garbage and I brought it back to my room. And I remembered that I was, um, I was going to purposefully nurture these plants back to health. They were dead. And sure enough, I brought both of those plants back to life and I kept them in my room and then I brought them back downstairs to my mom and she was pretty stoked. And I was so proud of myself for bringing something back from the dead and for bringing these plants back to life and making my mom happy. And so plants meant a lot to my mom. And so they were pretty significant to me when I was growing up because it was like a, it was a nurturing part of our life. And so I, um, I'm definitely all about the plants today. So I can, I can see where I had that connection come from. Another thing that my mom was really good at, she was very good at cooking. I'm pretty sure she got that from my, um, my mom, my grandma. My grandma was like a four to five course cooker. She loved to entertain. She loved, um, she loved inviting people over for parties. She was always having appetizers and snacks and all kinds of things. And so my mom, when she cooked, she usually would have like, she would have like a salad before, um, spaghetti with like meatballs. She would call them big meatballs because they're huge. And then you would have a dessert. And so she loved to cook and she was a very good cook. I mean, she made different stuff all the time. Sometimes she was making anywhere from like three to four different dinners every night. And that was significant to us because we love to eat and we love to sit at the table and hang out. And so um, when she started to deteriorate with her eyes, when she couldn't see as much anymore, her cooking stopped. And I know that we all missed it. Um, Another thing she loved to do is she loved to bake cookies. And so she would... When she, when she would bake cookies, she would bake like 100 or 200 at a time. And she would divvy them all up in those tin cans that you can get at Goodwill for like a quarter. And she would just spread the love and she would give it to all of our relatives. She would give it to neighbors. And she just loved to um, cut out like trees and snowmen. And then she would frost them and then she would decorate them. And she was very hands-on and she was pretty good at what she did. She actually was good with all of her drawing. And that was something about my mom that was pretty unique too. I don't know where she got this from, but she, whenever she signed her name, she would draw a picture within her R. It would be like a smiley face and it would be an eye and then it would be like an eye winking with eyelashes. And so she always had some kind of like signature with a smiley face or some kind of heart. It was beautiful. And so she was great at um, art. She was great at signing her names and in our cards, all of our cards when we were growing up, she had some kind of smiley face that signified her artistic talent and the way that she loved us. It was her way of showing her her love. And of course, those things started to fade away when she lost her eyesight and I missed it. 
I miss those things a lot. And so I have some of her recipe books um, from when she was cooking when we were younger. And what she would do is if she really liked recipes, she would draw some kind of like face and then she would write the word yum next to it. And so that before when she was like, you know, kind of quickly going through the pages, she could find it based off her picture. And so sometimes I find those little pictures and it's it brings me a lot of joy to remember the way that my mom used to write. Um, some other fun things that were that we did when we were growing up. Um, we used to go on like these family trips to Bible camp. Uh, it was a, I'm pretty sure it was like a deaf Bible camp. And so we would go there for like the weekend or the week. I can't remember, but we would have like these picnics. Now picnics were like a big thing back in the day. Picnics. I feel like picnics are kind of like an old way of celebrating and, um, going to the park and bringing all of your Tupperware and all of your utensils and the picnic um, the, that little red and white um, squared checkered picnic tablecloth and all those things. And so she was very active. She definitely took part in entertaining. She took part in going out and doing things. And she took a lot of part in um, celebrating over food. That was just one of her niches. She was so good at doing those things. Another thing that I remember when I was growing up, too, is um, my dad really loved golf. And so there was always golf in the background in the living room. And he used to actually swing his golf clubs in our living room. There was enough space between all the furniture, the floor, and the roof. And so he was so good at golf. He was able to not break anything, which is pretty impressive because I think even now, if I had space outside, I still hit something. So he definitely, um, he's a great golfer. I actually golf with him now and it's something that I love to do. Uh, and so now I'm going to go into some of the, um, those differences of the language of our culture and how it impacts, especially language, how it impacts the way that we communicate with each other. Of course, everybody knows that um, communication is a form of words. And there's some organization around communication to make sure, like syntax and um, the way that you enunciate words and your melody and things like that in order to convey um, a set of words to be communication that is interpreted to other people so that they understand it. And so um, in the English language, there is uh, it's subject, verb, object. And so that's the way that you normally formulate a sentence to communicate. But in the um, American culture, or sorry, the American Sign Language culture, their communication is actually, it's ob object, subject, verb. So there's, it's a different way of communicating. And the way that we communicated, um, it showed up in the way that we read and it shows up in the way that we write, especially now, I can tell you that whenever I'm writing anything, I still, no matter how hard I try to avoid it, I end up saying everything backwards and then I have to rewrite it. And so I will show some, um, some of the ways that we talk differently from the English language to the American Sign Language language. Now, one thing I do need to point out is that with Eng the English language, not only can you listen to it, but you can also read it. And so English, learning how to speak English is a lot easier than learning how to speak sign language because sign language really isn't speaking. There is no, you can't read sign language. You can't go pick up a book that has sign in it. And so sign language requires visual. It's all visual. So you can't listen to sign language and you can't read sign language. So the communication is all visual. And so the visual, um, 
a lot of the signs are called like non-manual signs or signals, which just pretty much means that like your eyebrows are moving, um, your body changes and shifts different ways, your head tilts. And so those are the different kinds of ways that we understand what you mean when you're saying something to us. And so we are waiting on those specific non-manual signals to understand, for example, the tone of your voice. And so in the English language, you can be sarcastic, you can be angry, you can be abrupt by the way that you communicate, um, by um, having a higher frequency when you say no to no. You know, you can kind of tell that there's differences. And so in, in American Sign Language, we learn all of those things by watching. And so facial expressions, the way that you communicate with your body is everything that we're paying attention to. And that sticks with me to this day. I don't know if I've said this yet, but text messaging is so hard for me because nine times out of 10, I'm probably misinterpreting what you're saying. I think that you're saying you're saying something to me, but in a different way. Like I would, I think that you're angry with me as opposed to you just saying a couple of sentences to me. So it's interesting because it's hard for me to appreciate and have friendships because I expect a lot more emotion through words, Um, a lot more emotion in our communications when we're together, because that's what I'm used to, as opposed to more of a, a delightful conversation that just uses words with somebody that's hearing. Okay, so let me explain some of those differences um, in the English and sign language. So, for example, um, a sentence in English might say something like, my mom cooks spaghetti, and then American Sign Language, it will say, or we will say, spaghetti, my mom cook. Um, So spaghetti, obviously, is the the object. And so that's what I mean when I say everything backwards. I, the, my mom cooks with spaghetti... I will say instead spaghetti my mom cook. And that's the way we communicate to each other. I'll come, you know, I'll talk to my dad and I'll say spaghetti um, mom's cooking. And so we um, eliminate a lot of um, extra words and just kind of go straight to the point. Another example would be I like birthday parties. And then, so that's in English. The second one, American Sign Language would be birthday parties me like. So you can see there's a, there's um, some grammar changes in there and that is not acceptable in the English language. Grandma enjoys knitting. Um, in ASL, it would be knitting, grandma, enjoy. So now you see how that enjoy is now enjoy. Uh, another example is my mom is going to the grocery store. And so grocery store, my mom, go. So these, um, the way, the word order Uh, beginning with object, is very different from the English language. So not only are we communicating and understanding our world through the language differently, but we're also, um, we're having, it's a very unique language because the object normally is not the first thing that you start with in the word order in in like 85% of the languages across the world. So American Sign Language is pretty unique in that, that it starts with object. Um, another thing about the our language, too, is when, we're, when you are born that way, I feel like no matter how hard you try, especially when you're still using that same culture every day, like if I were to turn off American Sign Language completely, 
I could see that I would probably be able to start, you know, to get away from my really bad habits of starting sentences with object. But because American Sign Language is something that I use every single day to this day, and it's so ingrained into my vocabulary, it's so ingrained into my language, and it's so ingrained to how I interpret and communicate in my world. Not only am I using it for communication, but I'm using it to interpret new concepts, new ways of um, thinking. And so um, it's really hard to break out of those habits. And so I found myself always in school, especially in my master's program, because it was such a high level of interpretation and analyzing information that it would probably take me, and I'm not even joking, probably five to 10 extra hours to go back over my papers and fix them. Because even when I would read them the first or second time, I'd be like, this is great. And then I'd go back to it and I'd be like, oh no, this is not okay. I've even sent my papers to some people or like if I would have an online class and I would send in a discussion. I remember there was a few times I was so humiliated. Um, This girl literally said to me, she said, I'm perplexed. I have no idea what you're saying. And I was like, that was really hard for me. Now, of course, I wasn't mad at her. And I felt it was all me. I felt shameful. I felt like I wasn't even competent. And I belonged to my master's program because of those words. I I mean, it was pretty hurtful. And of course, everybody was able to read it. So I was embarrassed and ashamed. And so I did reach out to some of my teachers, not everyone. I stopped reaching out to my teachers because I just felt like nobody would believe me. But I do remember I, I sent one teacher specifically uh, email and I said, I just need you to know that I'm really struggling with the writing and it's almost as if I need extra time. I have an issue where I just cannot, I cannot formulate the grammar the right way. I I'm, I just speak differently and I'm trying to put everything in together at a master's level. And I know that this writing is very important, especially when we're doing like literature reviews. Not only am I struggling to write these papers, but I'm also struggling to read these high level papers and journals that are speaking foreign language. I can't even understand what they're saying to begin with as a person that has yet read about these topics but it's hard to comprehend. I need to read each sentence maybe two to three times to really digest what they're saying. And so I normally would try to do two things where I would listen to the audio and then I would be reading it at the same time. And then I would always follow up with, you know, other videos to get a deeper understanding of everything. And so that was to my point when I said, um, when I was at church, it's a lot easier to understand communication and language through the deaf culture because they paint this visualization. And that's something I was always used to. And so they could literally talk about a subject, an object and a verb and say the same thing, literally back to back three different ways so that you really understand the message that they're conveying, because there's always a message through our words. And so I was so used to that. So I had sent an email to them. And of course, you know, I don't think he took me seriously. And I think he thought I was just trying to buy more time as if I just was not keeping up with my studies. And he just was like, there's nothing I can do for you. And so I know I got a 3.9 in my master's and I worked very hard, but I really could not work. I almost had to go down to like 10 hours a week because I could not I couldn't do both at the same time. So I sacrificed a lot of like income in order to be able to graduate. And so I worked so hard. I mean, so hard to the point where I would, I was crying a lot, but I got through it. I never gave up. I was so determined. 
And so some of those differences are the language barriers. And so I do wish that some of my teachers would have just taken me a little bit more serious or would have been more helpful. But again, some of those um, some of those barriers of my language did take part, but some of that also comes from the level of education that I had started when I started college. And so I'll get into that probably in the next few podcasts. So I'm going to leave it here. I hope that you guys really enjoyed this podcast, the touch base on my uncle, the neighborhood we grew up in, some of the best features of my mom that I love and miss about her, and then, of course, my own struggles with the, the communication of ASL. And so... I look forward to talking to you guys all again on the next podcast. Bye.